Welcome to the Azure Podcast, a series of short discussions on various topics related to the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Your hosts, Kale Tita, Evan Basilic, and Sajit Mello, discuss a specific topic on each show to give you a high-level overview of that topic and resources to get more information should you wish to dig further. For more information on our show, please see our website at azpodcast.com. Well, welcome to the Azure Podcast. Uh, this is episode number 20. We've made it to 20. And uh, it's a special uh, uh, topic that we'd like to cover today on the Windows Azure Cache. As always, my uh, name is Sajid Demello. I am a senior consultant with MCS coming out of New Jersey. And on Skype, I have my esteemed colleague, Kale Tita, with me. Kale? Yeah, thanks, Sajid. Uh, this is Kale Teeter. I'm also an MCS consultant in the New York region, and um, I work mostly with .NET uh, application development as well as Azure projects. Great. Good, great to have you back, Kale. And uh, we, Evan's got the night off today. He had some stuff to take care of, so we'll get him next week. So uh, just uh, this topic of cash, it's something uh, I'm surprised we haven't covered it yet. I know this is not a topic that's specific to Windows Azure or cloud uh, development, but it does have added significance uh, when you move things to the cloud because, you know, you have to think about how you're going to make most optimum use of all your uh, uh, your resources. So we're going to talk about what, uh, the, what caching facilities are available in Azure. But a little bit of history on Azure, on, on caching, I should say, is uh, is in order here. I think um, uh, now, Kale, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe uh, some of the the early uh, caching technologies on Windows was Memcached and Encache and Scaleout. I think you may have used Memcached. Yeah, Sajit, uh, years ago, you know, before I was working at Microsoft, uh, I was working for a, a company and we were, we were leveraging a couple of different cache products at that time. Um, Memcache D was, was kind of like the de facto standard. I mean, it runs on all the platforms. So you could run it on like Linux or Unix, but you could also run it on Windows. Um, so we were, uh, we were actually using Memcache D, but then this thing came out, uh, Project Velocity. I think it was around 2008. And um, we took a look at that, and that that worked really well because for especially for our .NET applications, um, because the API and those types of things work integrated easier with our code. Um, so this was something I know you mentioned. Uh, this is something that's it, not that it's niche, but it's a little different than some of the other services we offer. And um, you know, even outside of Azure, like just a regular application. You know, when you're talking about a, a typical client-server application where you have a database, that thing usually becomes the bottleneck eventually, right? We can put a lot of web servers in front of it, but eventually your data store is going to become a, a, a bottleneck. And there's other ways, you know, sharding and things to spread the data ba- database out. But one of the quickest and easiest ways is is to use caching. So that's where these these products, I think, help out a lot. Right. Yeah. Just to say, throw memory at the problem. That always makes things faster. Um, now, of course, uh, you know uh, most of our listeners and our developers in the audience would know that caching is nothing new. Uh, I guess even even if you had a simple in-memory name-value pair and you stored stuff in there, that's considered caching of some sort. 
but that's caching on a particular machine, on one particular machine. And typically, in uh, in production, we would have a farm of machines, and and therefore we'd, we we need to have a way where the caching is distributed. And that's one of the things that makes all these solutions unique is that they're distributed in memory caches. So uh, one of the uh, the concepts that uh, we should uh, present over here is the concept of a cache cluster, which is fairly common amongst all these uh, solutions, including the uh, the, the 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 Windows uh, solution, the Windows uh, App Fabric cache. And uh, essentially, the cluster is made up of uh, you know I guess two or three uh, machines running a special Windows service that is managing the map, the memory on that box and is also coordinating with the with the memory on the other boxes such that if uh, an application on one box sets some value in the cache that can be retrieved from another application running on another box uh, and and I w- they would get the same value so is this does this mean there's a lot of uh, like network traffic between these uh, servers in the cache cluster yeah, I mean, that that's one thing you have to think about, right, is when we start using these things, they're literally, the laws of physics are going to apply, right? We have to replicate this data, and uh, that's why this isn't something that's, like, super easy to implement. Um, so when you take some of these services like Memcached that have grown over the years and, and even our product, um, they have some very sophisticated ways to handle, like, these situations where things need to expire. So if we want to remove something from a cache and, and we remove it from cache server 1 and a three-node cluster, we want to guarantee that if somebody hits that third node uh, of the cluster, they don't get a value if they're not supposed to. Um, so that, I think those are some of the intricacies that really get handled well by these these modern cache servers, and uh, it's something to think about. Um, but you know, from us as developers' sake, um, we're afforded the luxury now of these things being handled for us. And I believe, uh, although this uh, this cache cluster per se may be distributed, it we get the application is presented with a fairly logical view of the cache cluster. Uh, the application typically doesn't really know how many machines there are or where those machines are. Uh, the configuration that is set up in the application configuration file um, points to the cache cluster, and the cache cluster manages uh, all the uh, the data between the various nodes in the cluster. But logically, when an application has to deal with the cache, it uh, the first uh, thing that it has to deal with is something called naming, on uh, creating a name uh, for the cache. Every application has to have a unique name. Is that right, uh, Kale? Sure. Yeah, we got to keep this separate. It's kind of like um, if you can think about like at the simplest layer, like a dictionary, like a key value pair kind of thing. Right. So um, you you create a name for the cache, and then you can also create regions for the cache, which is sort of like a subcategory of the names. Uh, so if you want to break down your cache into a name, and under that name you may have a specific region, maybe the region could be something like sports or arts, um, and, and the name of the catalog could be a name of the cache could be catalog, for example. So that kind of helps you narrow down some of the items in your cache, and then on top of that, you can even uh, assign tags to each of the items that you put into cache. Uh, and the and the real uh, neat thing about that is it lets you search for items in your cache very easily by just querying on a tag. So um, I'm guessing that uh, that's that's something that you know application developers need to keep in uh, keep uh, keep in their mind as they're uh, starting to use this uh, cache 
Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, and I think the other thing that um, that, that works especially well with uh, with this product is the administration of it. Um, so this is where things like DevOps can really come into play, where we have our operations folks actually managing the cache, and it's abstracted totally away from the developer. Um, like you mentioned, Sajid, years ago, when we just used the memory on each server as our cache, um, the developer was the one who was in charge of it, so we just asked ops and said, how much memory do you need for your server? This is what we get. And then we stored our, our items there, and we had to figure out how to handle the concurrency issues and those things. Right. And, but now it's something that even PowerShell, they can use like a PowerShell tool to go configure new cache servers and, and figure out how to spread these regions across those and configure all that. So it's kind of nice that ops can uh, manage that separate from the developer. Yeah, so eventually the app the app fabric cache on Windows Server is now is now made available in Windows Azure, and there's a couple of ways that they've made it available. One is the cache service, which is kind of like I suppose like a managed service. Is that the best way to describe it? Yeah, that's more like um, like our platform as a service type thing, where it fits into that. Okay, and of course you know. As with all things Azure, you get a choice of three different tiers. There's a basic tier where cache sizes can be from 128 megs to 1 gigabyte. There's a standard tier, which ranges from 1 GB to 10 GB. And then there's a premium tier, which goes from 5 GB to 150 GB. So pretty much, you know, any size cache you need is available with this. And, uh, you know, of course, things are not free when... Uh, when you, you know when you're talking this much amount of memory, just to give you guys uh, an idea, the, the basic uh, the basic tier starts off at about twelve fifty a month for a single unit, and then you can have multiple units, which is multiples of one hundred twenty eight megs. Uh, the standard tier is fifty dollars a month, and the premium tier is two hundred dollars a month for one five gigabyte unit, and you can buy multiple units as required, up to eight in each case. So there's a lot. Uh, that uh, you know, uh, you have a lot of options there in terms of using the cache service, because the service is managed by Microsoft, and you're just writing an app to use it. Uh, is that the basic idea? Yeah, I think the thing that um, people have to think about when they're using something like this is, um, if your code's built to handle to work with cache, whether it be even be on premise, like if you already had a caching layer that you had built, that you're using maybe App Fabric with. Um, it's pretty easy to uh, bring that up here to Windows Azure and, and integrate it with what we got here. And, and another point is, you know, when you do things up in the cloud, like if you started to leverage things like our, our Windows Azure SQL database, our, our platform as a service for SQL, um, definitely in those cases, because of the way the transactions happen, um, speed is definitely an issue there um, as far as, like, making sure that we can keep things super fast and uh, definitely implementing a cache layer is, is kind of crucial it's, when you're using those. Yep, it's the easiest way to scale out and get uh, more users on. Yep. Now, uh, you know, so as as with all things Azure, we use the portal to, to create the cache. If, if we do want to use this cache service that uh, Windows Azure now offers, i got to say that it's still in preview. Uh, it should be going GA soon, and we'll definitely let you guys know in a future episode when we do go GA. So, um, you know, you simply walk up to the portal and uh, 
you select the, the the tier that you want from you know the basic standard or premium and in each of those tiers you can specify how much uh, how many units you want to uh, you want to use that's the amount of memory that you want in each tier and uh, you, you specify you configure a few things for example the default exploration policy uh, as Gail was mentioning earlier as items uh, when you put an item into the cache you can say that it has to be you can only live in there for maybe a minute 10 minutes or whatever uh, the value of that item is uh, if 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 in, in order to keep the cache relatively fresh you don't want to keep things in there forever uh you can also specify um, whether you want to subscribe to cache notifications this is something uh, i believe uh, was an advantage of velocity over other offerings scale yeah this was this was something that differentiated it from mcached so definitely something to take advantage of if you're interested in um you know being notified whenever things happen inside your cache layer, you know. Yep. And, and then there is a high, a high availability option available, uh, which what it does is it, although there is the cache cluster, which has, you know, obviously multiple nodes and it's automatically failed over and whatnot, if you want to go above and beyond that and want to have it distributed across data centers, you can, you can, you can ask for the high availability option. And then there is the eviction policy, which essentially comes into play when you, you're running against the boundaries of the memory that you've allocated for the cache. So what happens in those cases? You know, do items automatically get kicked out, the older items, or uh, do does the cache operation fail at that time? So you can specify all those policies, and and then you simply configure your cache client by adding some entries into the web.config or app.config file. And if you already have an app that's using App Fabric Cache, as, as uh, Kale mentioned, uh, you're good to go. You know, the, your app should just work as it is. It's, it's, it is compatible with existing apps that are using App Fabric Cache and also apps that use Memcached. Uh, it, uh, they have implemented a wire protocol that is compatible with Memcached as well. Now, uh, so, so, so Kale, uh, what about this other option for the in-roll cache? Yeah, so the in-roll cache is a little bit different, and basically what you're doing there is you're able to set aside some memory inside of your VM or even in, like, your cloud service. So if you're using, like, um, you know, our PaaS offering, um, you can set this up, um, and basically the way you configure it is if you're using Visual Studio, um, you can go into the service configuration, and inside of there, and uh, we have a GUI for it inside Visual Studio, you can... Um, configure this option. There's a caching section in there. Mm-hmm. And in there you can set, set aside whether it's going to be a dedicated caching uh, node or whether it's going to be co-located along with your application. So um, the nice thing about this is it's, um, you can essentially get this kind of for free. So if you already have an instance, like a worker role, let's say, running up there, and uh, you enable like co-located uh, in-role in cache, you're, you're basically getting it for free, so you have this cache service there. A little less sophisticated, maybe, than uh, than the cache cluster stuff that Sajit was talking about earlier, um, but essentially it's a, it's easy to set up, and um, if you have something running in PES, it's a simple way to get going with it. Yes, and the, I guess the, the downside here is that you can manage the cache uh, cluster yourself because you have to make sure you've got enough of in-roll instances running you know, to, to configure the failover and whatnot. Yeah, and also you have, like I mentioned, the dedicated versus co-located. So you can, uh, if you're doing co-located, you know, if your application starts consuming a lot of memory, it can start to adversely affect the cache. Exactly, because you're sharing memory with your application itself. Yep. 
Great. So, uh, so in either case, uh, no matter which option you pick, uh, actually programming the cache is probably the easiest of all, uh, I believe. Uh, essentially, you use uh, the, there's a NuGet package as as always that you you pull down, and then there is a, a namespace, a Microsoft dot application server dot caching, and it's really a couple lines of code. You create a new data cache object and you give it a name, or you can choose the default name. And uh, you just call the add uh, the add method on it. You give it a name and a value. And uh, if you want to retrieve it later on, you just you, you do the same thing. You you just call the get method, and you give it the name, uh, or the, and it will return the value for you. There is also uh, a way where you can add items with a specific uh, expiration if you don't want to use a default expiration uh, on the item. And then there is a difference between an add on a put and add, uh, you know, will fail if it already exists. Put will replace or add as as appropriate. And then, then they have, you know, delete and other operations as well. But uh, actually doing this programming seems pretty easy. Uh, okay, what else can we do with the cache, uh, with, the, in, with, yeah. the, with both these caching options? Yeah, a couple other key scenarios. One of the ones that came up was using it for the ASP.NET session state. So for years, you know, before we even had this, then we we basically had in-roll on our web servers where we could store our session state on each individual web server. Then we started to get it in SQL Server where we could use that as the store to um, basically allow one of our web servers to fail and the state would still be maintained because it was in our SQL Server. And now we're able to, like, push that into something like this, like our cache, so we have a provider there that plugs in to allow it to um, basically use memory to store your session state, which is awesome because from a speed perspective, um, if you have a web app and you're storing some uh, personalization type things in there, it's kind of nice to uh, have that speed. Absolutely, yeah, that should make things really fast. Yeah, and then uh, probably one of the other ones would be the uh, page output caching um, that we have in ASP.NET. So any of you ASP.NET programmers, we've had that for a long time as well. Um, you know, they could store it directly on the web server, and now we're able to actually redirect that over to, to these cache clusters as well. So, uh, you know, in terms of uh, what uh, other things that uh, the developers need to do, there's obviously capacity planning when it comes to using the cache uh, service. You want to make sure you're picking the right tier and the right memory, and how do you figure all those things. There's actually a link on the Windows Azure website, and we'll put that in the show notes. It has a lot of details, some little kind of tables and formulas you could use to figure out which is the right uh, tier and memory size for you. And and then the the other thing that developers are going to face is, you know, what happens when you do hit that memory limit? You know, you've picked a tier, and your website or your system is now very, very busy and more popular than ever, and you need to scale up. What are your options? Well, the first obvious option is that within a specific tier, you can just increase the number of the memory, add, an, add, a, add a memory unit, as they call. Uh, but once you've reached the maximum for that particular tier, you have to go to the next tier. That's the only way you can scale up. And the while just increasing memory doesn't have any application impact, moving from one tier to another does because they have to move you to a completely different uh, system on the back end. There is, uh, you, you, when, when that migration happens, two things happen. First is you lose all your existing cache items because you, you, you're getting, kind of moving over to a new cache system. And the second thing is uh, there is a small 
um, outage of a, 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 a very, they say, a very small window of outage when the, the application switches over completely to the new system. So once you've switched over, though, then you're on the new system and uh, you have now the bigger, larger memory. That's just one thing to keep in mind. If you ever have to do that, I guess you would do that uh, off hours or when the system's not so busy. And uh, I suppose, uh, like, what about things like, um, you know, monitoring and troubleshooting? What uh, what uh, what can uh, developers do over there? Yeah, Sajid, I think um, one thing to consider when you're talking about these cache services is, is that they're there to, you know, help increase the performance of your application primarily, but they're not there for long-term storage, right? So we have to make sure that when we're writing stuff, it gets flushed to the database, but if the cache would happen to, like you said, let's say we max the cache out or something happens and somebody makes an administrative error and like takes one of our cache nodes down or even a couple of them down, our application should be written in such a way that um, we can still get the data. So um, that's the thing you want to keep in mind with your apps when you're building your apps, um, to have a nice abstracted away um, cache layer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we are able to uh, continue to function, maybe at a little bit slower rate, um, but it still functions. But, uh, I mean, the big thing is we have uh, metrics and things we can track through the portal. So we have nice, you know, graphs and that kind of thing up there, also through the service management API. So if you have your ops team or DevOps team wants to instrument something custom there a little bit, um, you can do that. But you can also, you know, uh, set the diagnostic level in the log files. So we don't have to make a lot of code changes if we want to uh, turn up some of the logging on what's going on here. Um, and also, we as we as developers could also instrument our code to be able to handle, like I said earlier, um, when a cache failure happens, kind of thing. Got it. Excellent. Well, I think that's a, a nice uh, little uh, uh, episode on caching. We're coming to the end of here. Uh, as always, I'd just like to keep our listeners abreast of any uh, new updates with the Windows Azure service. And there's a few that I'd like to mention today. Uh, the first is uh, Microsoft now has uh, provides uh, direct Oracle support for uh, for their Windows images, so you could run the Oracle database in a VM and with full support from Microsoft. Uh, this is something new, and uh, if you guys do, uh, were looking for a place to, to park your Oracle databases, uh, you can now consider Windows Azure as well. Uh, you, can, you can use your own licenses, or Microsoft can provide licenses for you as well. Another neat service, something called the DearAzure.com. This was this was kind of neat. Uh, we called this one of the internal DLs, and it's essentially it's a it's a public website where if you have questions about Azure, you could just ask them in plain English, uh, like you know, how can I configure a custom domain, or you know, uh, when would I want to use the Windows Azure SQL database instead of SQL Server on a VM? You can just ask little English-like questions like that, and it kind of gives you some detailed answers. So something for you guys to take a look at in case you have questions about Azure. And then two more things. One is the Windows Azure Traffic Manager, which is sort of like your global DNS router for your application so that to ensure that, uh, you know, clients from different parts of the world are being sent to the right data center in, in different parts of the world. Uh, is uh, now That now supports Windows Azure websites, so that's something that, would be important if you have a large uh, Windows Azure website implementation, which is very global in nature. 
And then finally, HD Insight, our Hadoop uh, implementation in the cloud is now uh, upgraded to Hadoop 2.2, which has all the latest and greatest things. It's now GA. So if you guys are looking at using Hadoop or already using it, you can take advantage of the new version of Hadoop out there. Well, Kale, I think uh, that's a wrap for us. Uh, uh, Thanks again for all your insights and input today. Yeah, thanks a lot, G. This was great. And uh, we shall see you guys next week. Take care. See ya. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any comments or questions, please use our Twitter handle at Azure Podcasts. Background music has been taken from ccmixer.org under the Creative Commons license. Thank you, and see you next time.